Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of SCP Revealed. My name is Researcher Jove, and today we are going to be looking at a pretty mysterious SCP, but it's also pretty useful to the SCP Foundation. This is an exciting episode as well as I have just reached over 3,000 views. That is so amazing to me just because I never would have expected so many people to be interested in it and to, you know, keep checking up on it. But I am thankful for every one of you who has taken the time to watch these episodes. So for 3,000 views, we're going to be doing item number SCP-3000 called Enantasesha. Object class, Thaumiel, which means beneficial. A small slight note also, I should let you all know now, in case you don't already, that D-Class are basically what the SCP Foundation team as in expendable, that they are expendable. So they usually are used as like, pretty much like throwaway people, which kind of, you know, sounds really bad, but the SCP Foundation isn't always good. Also, that amnestics are what the SCP Foundation uses to erase memories of those who might encounter SCPs or other situations where the SCP Foundation would rather the public not remember. And memetics are stuff that alters perception, whoever is viewing it. So with all that being said, let's get back to it. Special Containment Procedures The area containing SCP-3000, currently a region in the Bay of Bengal, roughly 300 kilometers in diameter, is to be routinely patrolled by Foundation naval vessels. Under no circumstances are civilians allowed to attempt deep-sea exploration or diving efforts in the quarantine area. Individuals believed to have contact with SCP-3000 are to be contained, quarantined, and processed at Site-151. Individuals affected with the anomalous properties of SCP-3000 are to be held in containment indefinitely. A Foundation submersible is to monitor the location of the foremost section of SCP-3000, currently located within the Ganges Fang, roughly 0.7 kilometers beneath the bay. The submersible is tasked with carrying out the ATZAC protocol, and staffing regulations on board the vessel are subject to the guidelines of the protocol. For a full description of the ADZAC protocol, see Addendum 3000.2. Currently, there is no known cure for the exposure to SCP-3000. As such, affected individuals should be contained and quarantined for further evaluation. Individuals stationed aboard the submersible are not permitted to leave the vessel except for the purposes of carrying out the necessary procedures of the ADZAC protocol. Individuals who leave the vessel without proper authorization are considered to be lost. Under no circumstances should any individuals interact with SCP-3000 without proper authorization. Description: SCP-3000 is a massive, aquatic, serpentine entity strongly resembling a giant eel. The full length of SCP-3000 is impossible to, to determine but it is hypothesized to be between 600 and 900 kilometers. The head of SCP-3000 
3000 measures roughly 2.5 meters in diameter, and sections of the body are believed to be as large as 10 meters in diameter. SCP-3000 is typically a dormant creature, only moving its head in response to certain stimuli or during feeding. The majority of its body is located in and around the Ganges Fang, and rarely moves at all. SCP-3000 is carnivorous, and despite its dormant nature, is capable of moving quickly to, to dispatch prey. Despite its size, it is hypothesized that SCP-3000 does not require substance to maintain its biological functions. While SCP-3000 excretes a thin layer of viscous, dark gray substance classified as Y909 through its skin as it consumes prey, the end results of its digestive properties are still currently unknown. SCP-3000 is a Class 8 cognitohazard entity. Direct observation of SCP-3000 may cause severe mental alterations in viewers. Individuals who directly observe SCP-3000, as well as any individuals within a certain or an uncertain distance of SCP-3000, experience inexplicable headaches, paranoia, general fear and panic, as well as memory loss or mind alterations. The following is a log from Site-151's historical records written by Dr. Eugene Getz about initial discovery of SCP-3000 and the effects felt therein. And this begins the log. The unease was felt throughout the entire crew as we descended on that first night. Whether this was due to our uncertainty of what we would discover, or something more sinister, I couldn't speculate. As we continued the descent, William began sweating profusely. When asked about it, he could not respond, stating that he felt he was missing something, but he could not figure out what. As our descent continued, he began to act more and more erratically, and at one point addressed me as Darlene, and expressed uncertainty about the tasks he was assigned to handle. Similar feelings were expressed by the other members of the crew, but Williams felt it the most. His mimetic resistance was by far the lowest of us all, as he was a biologist, and not a mimeticist. When we finally came into contact with the entity, he began whimpering and had to be sedated. I, re I remember him muttering the word no over and over again, as if in disbelief. He went silent after a while as we approached the head, and when I looked back, it seemed like something had gone from his eyes. He did not even blink as we made our final descent. Around 0940 hours, we first observed the head of the entity. The unease was obvious now. Several of the other crew members complained of feeling hazy and being uncertain of what they were supposed to be doing. Captain Ritter, ever the man's man, wrote, wrote it all off as nitrogen intoxication and forced them to continue approaching the entity. When we were about 50 meters, the entity slowly turned its head to look at us. Even now, as I recall watching this thing coil around in the darkness, I can still hear w Williams barking like a mad dog at the rear of the vessel. He was screaming and flailing about, shouting about how he could see it in its head. Perkins and Harrison tried to restrain him, but he got free and smashed his face against one of the portholes. 
He hit it so hard that he cracked the inner layer of the glass. The damage was bad enough that we had to resurface. We tried to give Williams medical attention, but he was too far gone at that point. He had pulped himself against the glass, and despite the trauma, he still spoke briefly as he lay dying. Nobody recorded it, as we didn't think to at the time, but I remember it well enough. He said, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. By the time we'd reached the surface several hours later, William was dead. At the time, I didn't think much of what he had said, just the ravings of a man gone mad by the depths, I figured. I didn't know any better then. But even now, I can still see the eyes of the creature. I see it hanging there in the darkness, illuminated by a light I cannot find the source of. And I feel the lingering dread that Williams must have felt that night in the submersible, as he was overcome by whatever void that foul thing slithered out of. Discovery SCP-3000 was discovered in 1971, shortly after two Bangladesh fishing boats and 15 fishermen were reported missing after drifting near the Indian coast. As the country of Bangladesh had only been recently established at the time and had been subject to significant political persecution on the part of the Pakistans, this incident received high-profile media attention due to the fears that it was a result of foreign aggression. Local coastal dispatch units could not locate the missing boats, fueling further media hysteria. Foundation researchers stationed in Calcutta drew similar drew similarities between this disappearance and incidents from two years earlier. A thorough search revealed the location of two boats, as well as an unknown, previously undiscovered mass below the surface of the Bay of Bengal. Further investigation by Foundation divers discovered the existence of SCP-3000. The area was quickly secured and current containment procedures were put in place. The ATZAC protocol was adapted in October of 1998. Addendum 3000-1 Initial Contact Exploration Log I will be summarizing this log as it gets kind of hard to follow along because it jumps around from person to person while they are also showing confusion. So this begins the summary of the log. The log begins with the sound off of three crew members, Alpha, Bravo, and Foxtrot, who are standing in an airlock of the submersible. Over the radio, Command asks them to check their tethers to make sure that they are tightly attached to the ship so they don't lose anyone. Command also informs them that they are 500 meters from the entity. One of the crew asks what the visibility be will be in the area, and Command informs them that they will only be able to see about 3 meters in front of them. Command informs the crew of the immeasurable size of the entity, and that it has been dormant for about 3 weeks now, coiled around itself. The airlock is then flooded with water, and one of the crew comments on how cold the water is, as well as the darkness on the outside of the airlock. Each of the team members turn on their headlamps before they exit the airlock and begin swimming towards the entity. As they get a bit closer to it, Foxtrot asks Alpha to turn, or how to turn on his headlamp, with Alpha replying that it already is on. Foxtrot then begins showing confusion about his designation, with Bravo becoming confused as well. 
Alpha tries to clear up the confusion before getting confused himself and losing his train of thought. He then asks Command for clarification as to where they are and what they're supposed to be doing. Bravo begins complaining of headaches, which seem to grow in intensity the further along they go. Command warns the team that they may be experiencing cognitive effects from the entity, but urges them to continue forward. Still showing confusion, the team moves forward and is informed that they are about halfway from the ship to the entity. Command informs the team that they should be seeing it soon, and that they are detecting movement from it. Alpha begins to speak randomly to someone he thinks is with them, before telling Command that Bravo is being unresponsive and requests for the mission to be terminated. Bravo begins to speak, but is cut off by Foxtrot, speaking of darkness and oblivion, and of two dark eyes staring at him. Alpha tries to understand him as Command informs the team that they are going to start pulling them back to the ship. Before they are able to do so, however, the team breaks out into panic and confusion. Command informs the team that something is moving towards them and that they should prepare for retrieval. Alpha is confused and asks the entity and asks where the entity is as he doesn't see it, with Bravo yelling at him that is right in front of them. Foxtra is still showing confusion and begins to continue speaking of a void and an ending with only an eel remaining. There is radio silence for about a minute as Command tries to get a response from the team. Finally, Bravo answers, although says something unintelligible before asking Command to be quiet. Radio silence follows for another 30 seconds before Command informs the crew that something is caught on the tethers and it's preventing retrieval. Alpha comments that the entity is opening its mouth, with Bravo commenting on the darkness and Foxtrot seeming confused as to where and who he is. Alpha talks to someone who he thinks is there with them, although says it's impossible as he buried them a year ago. Bravo yells at Foxtrot to swim away from the entity as only darkness awaits. There's a moment of panic among the crew as the tethers attached to the ship seem to be getting pulled by the entity before radio is cut out for a while. When they come back on, Bravo informs Command that the, that the entity ate Foxtrot. Bravo then begins urging Alpha to cut his tethers and to swim away, but Alpha seems confused about who he is before himself getting eaten by the entity. This is again followed by more radio silence. Command urges a response from the team, but is ignored for a full minute before Bravo responds. He tells Command that he is floating away from the entity in the darkness as he cut his tether. He informs Command that Alpha is gone, and that he has some understanding of the entity's effects, that when they were close to the being, they saw a gray substance surrounding, surrounding it coming from its head with more produced as it consumed the others. Bravo guesses the substance is what causes the confusion, and informs Command that he gathered a sample that he'll be sending up in a small inflatable container. Command asks if the entity is in his sights, with Bravo explaining that it's in his head, stealing his memories away. 
He urges the people who are researching the gray substance to not spend too much time around it, and that they need to be trained to deal with its effects, as just looking at it is enough to cause painful headaches. Command reassures Bravo that they are going to be sending a team to recover him, but Bravo tells them not to bother before he goes silent. Command tries to get a response with no luck. Over the next half hour, a recovery team attempts to approach Bravo with no success. Command continues to attempt to communicate with Bravo, but responses grow increasingly unintelligible before eventually going completely silent. Bravo's radio stays active over the next three days, however, with sporadic breathing heard until the radio ceases functioning. This ends the exploration log. Addendum 3000.6 Notes on the ADZAC Protocol Some of the new recruits had questions about the work we do out here, so I'm publishing this to clear most of them up. Feel free to contact me in my office if there are any other questions. The ADZAC protocol is a method for gathering and processing the Y909 compound. It is a thick gray fluid that SCP-3000 excretes as part of its metabolism. We don't know exactly the method by which it does this, but we do have some ideas, though none of them appear great for us. Initially, we thought it was bleeding. The first team we sent to look down at SCP-3000 went down to collect blood samples for analysis. When SCP-3000 attacked and consumed them and began producing more of the substance, we realized that we were looking at something entirely different. It's definitely not blood. It's more akin to a prion slurry. It's extremely toxic and spending too much time around it suffered a cause a lot of the same effects as direct exposure to SCP-3000. Paranoia, memory loss, suicidal thoughts, etc. Refining the raw, refining the raw Y909 compound, which the processors call eel jelly, allows us to create amnestics more effectively than we ever have been able to in the history of this organization. I don't need to tell you how important it is with aiding and wiping unwanted memories from unlucky civilians who cross paths with any SCPs. Herein lies the ethical dilemma, however. SCP-3000 only creates Y909 compound after eating, and as far as we can tell, it only eats humans. Remember, we said we had some ideas about how it does this. Some of our biologists have hypothesized that SCP-3000 is breaking down whatever makes sapient creatures sapient, filtering it through some part of its skin, and the residue is what we're left with. We've taken radiographs of this thing, trying to see what's going on inside of it. It's full of dead human bodies though. They're not really being digested, it's doing something else, and the end result is the Y909 compound. When we first started using the Y909, we did try to recreate it. We got something a bit close to what we were looking for, called Y919, but the side effects were catastrophic. The amnestics would work, we would get people to forget events, people, whatever we needed them to, but then they would start to forget other things as well. The mental deterioration would rapidly increase until there was nothing left 
and they would eventually die. A few of those researchers thought we might be able to figure out how to decrease the severity of those side effects, but the cost to continue those trials would have been immense, and so the program was discontinued. It's no secret that what we're doing here is wrong. The ethics committee, the classification committee, they're all looking for ways to make this seem more tolerable than what it is. But the hard truth is, if we want to continue using modern amnestics, we have to have the Y909 compound. If we want the Y909 compound, we have to feed SCP-3000 D-class. Otherwise, we'd be forced to go back to the metaphor metaphorical Dark Ages, where we were amnesticizing people with opioids and chloroform. The good news is, we're developing new technology that should be able to take over the jobs of collecting the raw material from the diving teams. This will eliminate any chances of accidental casualties like we've had in the past, and it is a good first step. For everything else, only time will tell. That was written by Dr. Knox. Addendum 3000.7 Personal Journal of Dr. Minava I've spent a considerable amount of time on this assignment, attempting to understand the underlying effects of individuals exposed to such a strong cognito hazard. I have conducted numerous personnel interviews, written a great many psychological reports, but I have not been able to properly deduce what about this creature would lead a man like Dr. Vanak, a perfectly sane man, to walk out of the door of the airlock and to be consumed by the eel. He always was a more religious man than I am. Right at the end of his life, he was going on about Anantasasha, a primordial Hindu snake god that, as well as, as, well as rambling about eternity. I'm not going to question the legitimacy of his beliefs and his claims, but this is quite the puzzle. And I suppose I should consider myself lucky that this assignment is relatively benign compared to previous assignments that I've had. I do not think this is a mythological eel. Anomalous, maybe, but not really extraordinary. Earlier this week, as I was preparing notes for another lab report, I accidentally knocked over the picture of me and my family. The glass shattered as it hit the ground, and the picture fell out. As I was cleaning up the mess, I noticed something written on the back of the image. It said, Anand, Ashanti, and Padma, June 2002. But the writing was not mine. It was Vinax. I was puzzled by this. Why would Vinax have written on the back of a picture of mine? I thought little of it at the time, and cleaned up the mess and went about my day. But the question stuck with me. It was a little thing, easily explained in any number of ways, but I could not seem to shake the notion of uncertainty. It wasn't until last night that the horrifying thought struck me, one that I could not sleep on. I accessed the Foundation personnel archives and realized the truth that I could not reconcile. Shanti was Vinak's first wife, Padma was his daughter. The records are clear. The life I remember 
the experiences I am certain I've had with them are the experiences and memories of an ex, not mine. I've never been married, and I've never had any kids. Even now, though, I can see my wife in my mind, hear her laughter, smell her hair. But I realize now that these are not my thoughts, but Vinax that I'm seeing through him. The horror of this realization has been replaced with a queer sort of dread. I figured out what the ill does. Something about it, some latent part of its creation, hates cognition. It breaks down human consciousness and scatters the parts of us that we believe is a soul until nothing, until all that remains is what we really are, a bunch of electrical signals that will someday become inert. If even I can't remember myself, how can I expect anyone else to remember me? I have forgotten my own life, and I am strangely apathetic to this realiz realization. I will fade into darkness, as thousands before me have, and as thousands after me will. No one will care, as I am forgotten. I do not despair for my own sake, but for us all, you and I, we will all face obliteration. I am not important. You are not important. Vast droplets of irrelevancy stretching eons in the sea of time. We may fight against it, but our enemy is inevitability. I do not think the eel is an antecessia. I do not think it would matter if it was. What is clear to me now, as I am coming apart, is that the eel is is not that the eel is some mythological creature or divine serpent. Perhaps it's just a primitive creature that eluded us and holds no malice. Perhaps it really is a primordial deity harboring resentment beneath the surface. I do not think it matters though. I don't think the eel is the harbinger of my demise, nor humanity's doom. The eel is not the end of all things. It only showed us what the end looks like. And in spite of everything we might have believed, every ideal we hold and fate we may pray for, I know this much is true for all of us. Our ending will be a forgotten one. And this concludes SCP-3000. Overall, I give this document a 5 out of 5, as I really think it tells a really good story and creates a really foreboding atmosphere, and it gives you just enough information while still leaving stuff to mystery. I did try to keep it as short as I could so that it wouldn't be such a long episode, and I did have to cut out a few different parts, but I do encourage you guys to explore the document on your own with the link I provide. I would also, again, like to thank everyone who's checked out this podcast. I know it may not be set up the way podcasts normally are, and I might be a bit slow to add episodes, but I really do enjoy making these, and it makes me happy to know that other people actually do enjoy listening, too. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you in the next one.